Well, hello again. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go and grab those and um, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, just turn there, grab that spot, and, and, and mark that. And then um, with that mark, flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, and that's where we're going to begin here in a moment. But as you're, as you're turning there in your Bibles, we've, we've now entered into week 4 of this series, The Hope of Heaven. And uh, we've talked about um, heaven as being a place that exists. Um, it's a place where Christ is. It's a place where Christ now presently has gone and he's preparing this place for you and I. We've also learned that um, heaven uh, that exists now is not the same as what heaven was. And what heaven exists now and how it is now is, what it, is not what it will be later. So we know it's a place, we know that it's different from what it was, it's different from what it's going to be. But the question that can come that we come to now is, what will we be like in heaven? So for a time this morning, we want to look at what God's Word says about what you and I are going to be like in heaven. But most importantly in that, if you're taking any notes, write this at the top of your notes. The most important question around what will we be like is not the question of what we will be like. The question that is most important is why does it matter? Why does that question matter? So we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we begin. And Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And he's, in, he's in encouraging them at a time where they may be experiencing some despair. And they're wondering what things are going to be. What are the signs we need to look for? What's it going to be like? And he tells them. Of what it's going to be like at the coming of the Lord. So beginning in verse 13. Paul says these words. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he begins here. He's writing to the brothers, the church, those that are in Christ. And he says, Hey, we don't want you to be uninformed about these things. I want to give some clarity on what these things are that's going to take place. And he says, I don't want you to grieve. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. He's saying to the church, he's saying to you and I that we have hope. When we think of a world or a time to come, we have hope. We have the hope of heaven for a myriad of reasons. And here today, we're going to talk about one specific. But Paul, he says... I want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. When he says for those that are asleep, it's a reference to those that have, that have, that have died. Specifically those that have died in Christ. Those that have this, their bodies given out, they've been placed in the grave, they've been laid to rest. Those are who he's referring to as those who have fallen asleep. So I don't want you to be uninformed about those that have fallen asleep. So that you don't grieve as, others, as, grieve as others who have no hope. So that grieving we have when we lose a loved one. If we're affirmed that that person that has died and that we've laid to rest. If we're affirmed by the, the counsel of God's word and the ministry of that person's life and our life and our relationship with them. That they have placed their faith and their trust in Christ. They have died in Christ. We have hope. We don't grieve. There's sorrow certainly for the loss. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope that we'll never see that person again. But verse 14 he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, as the belief of the Christian, 
That is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, then he rose again on the third day. He says, even so, now, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we don't grieve as if there's no hope. Paul says that there is a time when, when through Jesus, when he returns, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in Christ will come with him when he returns. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he begins to lay out a, chrono, a, chronolog, a chronological order for you and I. Is that for those who have died in Christ, they're going to come with him. Those that have fallen asleep have come with him. But we who are still alive at the coming of the Lord will remain here. And those that have died will precede us. Precede us in what? Verse 16, as he continues on. He says, Now for the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When we who are alive, who are left, then will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I don't want you to be uninformed, Paul says. Don't grieve as if those like those that have no hope. You have a hope that those who have fallen asleep, according to God, he will bring with them, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. But note here, between what he says in verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But now in verse 16, he says, Now the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ are those that have fallen asleep. But yet, God will bring them with Christ. But when Christ comes... The first thing that's going to happen, as Paul says, is that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Now, how does this happen? How is it that those who have fallen asleep come with Jesus when he returns? And when he returns, they rise first. What Paul begins to introduce for us here is that the coming of the Lord, two things happen. He brings with him those that have fallen asleep. But as we've looked at in previous weeks, for those that die in Christ, when their bodies give out, Paul says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So we bury a body, a spirit goes on to remain and goes on to be with the Lord. And it is that spirit that comes with the Lord. And then when he says the dead in Christ will rise first, what rises? Something else. If the spirit is with the Lord, what rises from the grave? Implication would be our body. Now here becomes the question. The question that we'll get to here in a minute was asked in the first century. And that's a question that's also asked today in our century. As many people, when we think about the resurrection of the dead, what's going to rise? What's that look like? For the apostles and, and the martyrs who died in the first century, 2,000 years ago, their bodies were laid to rest in a grave, nothing left but bones. What, so what comes out of the grave? For 2,000 years, bones have been there. So do bones come out of the grave? Does a corpse come out of the grave? What if somebody died in Christ last week? They haven't even decomposed yet, but they're starting to. Does, does that corpse come out? Is it like the zombie apocalypse? I don't know if you've ever been asked this question before, but that's some of the foolish remark that some may have. But they remark even in their ignorance. But for the person that's cremated... Do ashes 
rise from the dead? What is it that rises from the grave? And this is the question that we begin to answer this morning. But the dead will rise first. Those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them. But if you have marked in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, turn there and we'll begin to answer this question as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And he begins to address this very question. In verse 35, he says now, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, with what, come, what, with what kind of body do they come? So it's a clear question that he's presented, and he's presenting the church. And the idea, when you, when you read in the scripture of, of Paul creating this argument or sharing an argument, it's likely because there's a person that existed within the body asking that question. So Paul is writing this letter to the church to address that question that has come up. So he says, someone will ask this question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he begins to answer. Verse 36, he answers with, you foolish person. Now, in a way, I'm like, I mean, has anybody ever wondered that question before? What comes up? How does this work? Paul's retort, you foolish person. I was like, I really don't think I feel that foolish. You know, I just want to know what's going to happen here. But as he begins to unpack this for us, we can see how a searching and ignorance can indicate some foolishness in the way we perceive what may be. So you foolish person, he says now, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Verse 38, But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So he begins to answer this question with the illustration of a seed. We take a seed of any plant, whatever it may be, of its kind, and we take that seed, and that seed is planted into the ground. And what happens to that seed when you plant it in the ground? Are there any farmers in here that knows what happened to that seed? That seed dies. Seed ceases to be a seed. Over time, once it's planted in the ground, bursting forth from that seed is the life of the plant that will sprout up from the ground. So he says there, what you sow is not the body that it will be. But it's just a kernel. It's just a seed. And it's sown in the ground. And what comes forth is a different body. But it's a body, according to verse 38, that God has chosen... God gives it a body as he has chosen. And then he says, and to each kind of seed, its own body. So not every seed is the same seed. Not every seed produces the same plant is what Paul begins to get at. So he takes this illustration and he begins with the seed and a plant being that they're different kinds according to how God has chosen that to be. And now in verse 39, he begins to, begins to apply that to flesh. He says, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Now, heavenly in this sense is, we talked about several weeks ago, three levels of heaven. We have the sky above, we have the universe, and then you have paradise, the dwelling place of God. But he said he's, we got heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Now, the word glory there is doxa in the Greek, 
And in this case, it means splendor or brightness. So think through it. Just understand the context as Paul is using this word glory. It's brightness or splendor. Now think of heavenly bodies, the bodies that exist in the heavens above us versus earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. He says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So he's building this case and pointing out that there is a difference and it is set according to God's choice. How God chose to create these bodies and give them this identity that is unique to them. For sun is brighter and splendor than the moon. We can all relate and understand that truth. Stars in the heavens, we see brighter stars in their splendor compared to other stars who don't seem to be as bright or shining in splendor. Now he says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He says, what is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. He says, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Now the word glory, doxa, there takes on more of a deeper context. It's not just splendor or, or brightness now. It takes on the context of majesty as belonging to God. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised now in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So what Paul is getting at here is there is a thing that is sown in the ground, and when it is raised, it is raised something different. And when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, for those that have fallen asleep in Christ, the seed, the body which is natural, is laid to rest And in God's due time, what comes forth is power, is imperishable, is in glory. So Paul draws this conclusion all the way back to the first man, Adam. He says the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the second became a life-giving spirit. He says if we have a natural body, we have a spiritual body. To be absent from the natural body is that our spiritual body goes on to be with the Lord. That is the spiritual body that returns with him when he comes. And then from the ground at the resurrection is not the seed. The seed doesn't come back out of the ground. What comes from the ground is the identity that was set in the seed. So think of it this way for you and I, for mankind. At creation, God formed all Of the earth, right? And then he takes from the dust and he forms man. But if you know the Genesis account, when God formed mankind from the dust, was he immediately a living being? No. He was not. He formed man from the dust and you have this lifeless form. You have this lifeless body. But then the very next thing that is written is that then God breathed into his nostrils. He breathed the breath of life into mankind's nostrils. 
in that act, God's taken and he's formed this empty, lifeless vessel. And then he's breathed into him life. He's breathed into him the identity that will set him apart from everything else. Remember, God chooses the kinds. To mankind, to animals, to birds, to fish. Every seed created by God, designed by God, given an identity by God. So that when it comes forth from the ground, it produces a life that is unique as God designed it. For mankind, he set us apart from every other thing in creation. He breathed his life into you and I. When we think of you and I as being image bearers of God, we receive that image from the life, from his breath breathed into the nostrils of Adam. So that when Adam comes forth, you have mankind that is coated with an identity that enables him to walk hand in hand, to see face to face, live with his creator. Such it is for us. It's when this body gives out Everything that God designed, that perfect seed, that perfect body, that his life was breathed into, sin enters the world and it begins to break that down. You see the separation, and we've talked about that separation in previous messages. But for you and I, for those that have faithfully departed, that have died in Christ, that seed, that body has been laid to rest, and in God's due time, he will come and raise it back up, imperishable, glorified, Equipped to exist with him once again in the way in which our identity was designed to do. Now I want to note real quick what came first. In verse 46, I might have got ahead of myself, but I do want to read this. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust... As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So if we follow Paul's, if we follow Paul's argument, what comes first is the seed with its own body, and it's distinct from every other seed, but it's carrying in it the identity of the plant. And then the seed is placed in the ground and it dies so that that plant can come forth. And we know from, from, from other gospel or other, other letters within the church that Paul has written, he said that I planted, Apollos came and watered, but it is God that will always bring about the growth. So mankind was formed from the dust, the lifeless body God breathed into his nostrils. He has his identity. And when this natural body returns to the dust in God's due time, we will come forth a spiritual body. But now a question regarding the natural body. Where often can our focus be? As we think through this, we think ahead, hey, this glorified body, what's this body going to be like? But before we get to the glorified body, what do we tend to try and do with the natural body? We try and glorify it. We try and glorify a thing that isn't meant to be glorified. You ever look at a seed and just, and just marvel at that seed? how beautiful that seed is, whatever color it is, whatever texture's on it. You ever try and fill a seed and just, and this seed is wonderful. Look at the seed. Check out the seed. No, we don't do that with the seed. No, we just take the seed and we put it in the ground because we want what out of that seed? We want the thing that the seed is meant to produce. 
Every time. I don't believe there's a planet on the, there's not a person on this earth. There may be, I don't know, that's a grand statement, but for our context this morning, there's not a person on earth that marvels and glories in the seed. What that person wants is they want to take that seed, they want to place it in the ground, and they want to see the beauty of that plant that comes forth. We marvel in the beauty of plants that are grown. Green leaves and purple and red and pink and yellow flowers. The beauty of creation as it contrasts a blue or an orange sky, a purple sky at night when we look at the sunset or a sunrise. We see the horizon and we see the glory of creation come forth. That's what we want to see come out of a seed. We don't glory in the seed. But what's the problem for you and I when we think about this natural body is we want to glorify this natural body. I want six-pack abs. I'm not going to lie. Men, don't you lie to me. Women, you want curves in proportion. We want hair where it once existed. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with those desires, but our challenge becomes is we go so far when it comes to a desire for this natural body to look away. We're not satisfied with the way this natural body looks according to who? According to us. I can tell you, when I look in a mirror, I'm not pleased with my body image, but that has to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with you. But I'm, I'm seeking to glorify something that's not meant to be glorified. Now, I will say, our bodies are a temple of the Lord. Therefore, we need to take care of the body in which temples where the Lord, by His Spirit, tabernacles amongst us, as, we, as we've talked before. So we need to take care. There's, you're, we should be mindful of how we're eating and, and all those things and taking care of this temple, yes. But when that becomes the, the end in itself... When we glorify this body, we're not looking toward what's going to come. Because this body's going to give out. This body's going to die. This body is going to go into the ground. But God, according to his goodness and his glory, he's going to bring forth from this broken down, ugly vessel, a glorified body that we can scarcely understand. And that gives us hope. That should give us a freedom with where we're at, not to just neglect the body, but not to seek to constantly adorn it and bedazzle it. And look at me. Modesty goes out the window when we glorify our body. And it becomes about ourselves instead of about glorifying the Lord. So, so it will be with those who have died in Christ, they will be raised imperishable. But now Paul said in, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, as we read in verse 17, he says, now for those who of us who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them and meet the Lord in the air. So for you and I, when that happens, if the dead in Christ are raised and they get this glorified body, but yet we're not dead, we hadn't, our seed hadn't gone into the ground, what happens to us? Because, I mean, do we get the same glorified body? Because we didn't die, our seed didn't go into the ground. Well, suffice it to say for right now, Paul addresses this later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. And we'll get to more of this here as we wrap up. But Paul says this, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
Yeah, uh, it's a mystery. For sure, as we think through some of the difficulty of it. But I tell you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep. He builds the case that we're not all going to die in Christ before the coming of the Lord. We, some will be alive when the Lord comes, but we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So whatever that may look like for us who are alive in Christ, whenever Jesus comes, and I speak in present terms, not saying I necessarily believe that Jesus is going to come in my lifetime, but I speak with urgency and expecting, expectancy that he is going to return. And if I'm alive... When he comes, and I hear that trumpet, and I hear the voice of the angel and the shout, I said before, I think I've said it many times over, I've never heard that trumpet, I've never heard that voice, but I can guarantee you, when I hear it happen, I'm going to know what it is. And whatever that looks like, as graves are open and glorified bodies head up, when these take, things take place, I'm just... <laughs> I'm ready to hop, I'm ready to hop. Get me out of here. I don't know what that's going to look like for me other than to say we're all going to be changed. We're going to be changed and equipped for where we're going because this natural body is not equipped for where we're going. The reason it's not equipped for where we're going is because of sin in this world. Sin broke everything that was meant to be glorified. But the Lord in his goodness will re-glorify the things that need glorification to be with him. So point number one, we will receive a new glorified body. Take away there. It's going to happen. We're going to receive that. Now, as Paul said, if we, are, if we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, right? We were born and we bear the image of the first Adam. But in Christ, we will bear his image so, point number two is our glorified body will resemble the resurrected body of Jesus. In Philippians, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he says this, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. It's no longer here. Our citizenry is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we can note there, under point number two, our glorified body will resemble the resurrected body of Jesus because we will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So two foundational text for you and I is that our bodies glorified will resemble that of Jesus' resurrected body. Now point number three is what we know about glorified bodies is found in Jesus. All questions that pertain to life and godliness are found in his word or given to us. And in his word we find descriptions of Jesus and accounts of Jesus in his resurrected body. And from those accounts, we can take away some things and begin to answer the question of, okay, we're going to get a glorified body. What is that body actually going to be like? So let's take away some things. We're going to lead, read several chunks of Scripture together. But taken from those, we can determine what the glorified body is going to be like. Uh, so in John chapter 20, um, 
verse 11 through, 13, through 18, you have the account of Mary Magdalene. She's, she's gone. She's in the tomb, the empty tomb, and she's lying there, and she's distressed, and she's lamenting. And she sees these two angels sitting there in the place where Jesus lay, and his body's gone, and she's in distress. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have, to, where they have laid him. Now, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So here you have Mary. She's in the tomb. She's sitting there. She sees the place where Jesus' body was. In that place is two angels. The angels ask, what's wrong with you, lady? What's wrong? What's up? Well, I'm sad because somebody's taken my master's body. He's gone. I came to adorn it, and he's gone. What do I do here? And then she hears a voice, and she turns around, and now she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize who he is. But nonetheless, she sees him. So we can take away, begin to take away here that she saw a person with a body. But let's continue on in that. In verse 15, uh, it said, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question that the angels asked. Same exact question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? More direct question for her. Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him so I may take him away. And then Jesus said, her, said to her, Mary. And then she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So you have Mary. She's there. She doesn't. She sees angels. She sees nobody. She's in distress. Somebody's taking him. I got to get him back. And all of a sudden, why are you weeping? Because this reason, thinking he's a gardener, whenever Jesus asked the same question. And then it wasn't until Jesus said her name that she recognized who he was. So takeaway number one is that Jesus will have a physical body because it says that Mary went to embrace him. Jesus said, don't cling to me right now because I haven't gone to the Father yet. But you see that Jesus has a body he has a person. He looks different, though. He's not exactly the same because she doesn't recognize him until he makes himself known to her by calling her name. And then she responds. Now, later on in John chapter 20, um, actually, immediately later on, verse 19, uh, we'll read this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So I would say rightly so. So the disciples are in a room, the doors are locked, and all of a sudden Jesus is there among them. Bam. And his first statement is, peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you and me. If all of these doors are locked, no one can enter in from the outside into these doors without a knocking and an unlocking of that door. And then all of a sudden a person is, bam, there. Hold up. And he knows this. Peace be with you, he says. So he has a physical body, but yet somehow he doesn't need a door to enter into a room. So there is a spiritual element to him. He's got a physical body, but yet he appears where he wills to appear. Some may say that he, walks, he walked through the wall. The text doesn't say he walked through a wall. It just said that he stood among them. So there's takeaway number two. And then continue on, John chapter 20, now verse 24. Uh, now Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin. 
He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and the place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So poor Thomas, he missed out on the first one. He wasn't there. Now surely we can assume that the disciples told him, Hey, Jesus came, we saw Jesus, we saw the hands and all that. Otherwise, where does Thomas get that? Unless I see these things. Unless he just believed. If Jesus is alive, if it's the same body, I ought to see holes in his hands. I ought to see a hole in his, hole in his side because he knows what happened. So now 26, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, same situation, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They hadn't got used to it yet. And then Jesus, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So we have a physical body. We see the marks of the crucifixion in that body. We see Thomas is able to approach and he's able to touch, physically touch his Lord in his presence. But yet he entered into that presence, not through a door. Now Luke's account in Luke chapter 24, uh, Luke's account of the same, the same situation. says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So to them, in their mind, surely if he didn't walk through a door that was open, he had to pass through that door. He had to pass through a wall. But they believe that they've seen a spirit. But what we find is that he has a body and that he was touched. You could see his hands. You could see his feet. You could see his side. The Spirit, Jesus himself says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When these things come to pass for you and I, when we take on his image and we receive a glorified body, it will be a physical body. It's not, we're not going to be spirits floating around from cloud to cloud. There's a physical aspect of it because heaven is going to be a physical place. And then one more time, in John chapter 21, this becomes the third time that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Verse 4 and following says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples are out on the sea and they're fishing. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So again, they see a physical form. They don't recognize him. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right, right side and you will find some. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, uh, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. So they see a physical person there. He calls out to them, and he engages with them. They do what he says. But it's not until he does something that's miraculous that they put it together that it is the Lord. But then we continue on, and we find one other element that we can take away from this resurrected body of Jesus. When they got on the shore, in verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of the large fish, 153 of them. Note the, the specificity of the account. All right, this is John writing, the disciple John, who 
was present for all these things. Eyewitness witness account. He knows the number of the fish. But 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. So you have Jesus. Has a physical form. Yet some kind of spiritual element where he can just be somewhere. Bears the marks of his crucifixion. But yet, he also will sit down and eat. He'll sit down and fellowship with his disciples. And he says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And then John says, this now was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So some things that we can take away from this as it pertains to what that glorified body will be like is there will be a continuity between this life and the next. It means things will continue on. There's elements of us and in, in, in who we are. So our identity or our identity will go ahead. Jesus went forth and he chose to reveal himself and who he was. They recognized him and they were recognized by him. So there's an identity that goes on. And then our earthly names will continue on as well. In Revelation chapter 20, Right? It says that the book of life was open. And if there, someone's name was not written in the book of life, they went into the outer darkness to be judged with all the wicked. So our name continues on. So we have an identity. We're understood to be who we were. Our name continues on. We don't get new names because that name is written in the, in the book of life. And then we will also enjoy communion with God and with others. But we will enjoy this communion without the curse of sin. We will live, we will eat, we will drink. In Revelation 19, we read of the wedding supper of the Lord or the wedding feast, the banquet table of the Lord, where there will be feasting together. So we're going to enjoy good, wonderful food that is wonderful to the taste. Food that we likely have never tasted before. We find in Revelation 22, you have the river of life that we would drink from. We have the tree of life and the fruit, it yields its fruit in its season. So you have the fruit of the tree of life which we will partake of. So we'll be eating. We will taste the goodness of heaven. So as it relates to the senses, if we have taste, we can reason and conclude that there's also going to be sight, there's going to be sound, there's going to be smell, there's going to be touch. All of these are things that relate to a physical realm, a physical place that exists, and we will have glorified bodies to interact with this physical place. Now, why does this matter? To conclude, all of this is great to think through and what it's going to be like. But why does it matter? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 and following. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That promise is realized, not today. I don't know if you can relate to me right now, but I still experience the sting of death. We are still affected by it. On this side of heaven, all things have not been made new yet. We still exist in a broken, fallen world. My flesh is fallen and broken. And if I follow after my flesh, I'm going to experience the sting of death. And it can happen daily in my life. So daily I have to take an account of my motives and my heart, my thoughts, turn those over to the Lord. I need to seek confession and repentance of things because the sting of death is upon me. But he says, when the mortal puts on immortality, when the seed is dead, and the body that was meant to grow and flourish comes forth, when that happens, then shall come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin. But when that happens, sin is no more a part of our lives. For an eternity, he says, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen. This is why Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, as we read earlier, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed of these things. I don't want to make this thing the main thing, but you need to be informed about it as to what comes to pass, what comes to be, how this happens for you and I. The body dies, and what comes forth is the spiritual body that was meant to be. It is meant to be equipped. We are returned to the Eden we were created to exist in. So Paul says in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Church, this is the hope of heaven. It's one of the many hopes of heaven. But as I study and I take an account of God's scripture and the plan and the process that he laid forth before the foundations of the earth for me, God chose me he gave an identity to this body that is going to die. He knows it's going to die. But I have to rest in the truth that this body is going to give out. It's not meant to be there. So if I get so consumed with, this, with the, what this body looks like, and I go to so many lengths to try and adorn and build up this body in some way, I'm glorifying that which is not meant to be glorified. I'm glorifying something that will give out. We live in a culture that perpetuates this myth. The world lies about this thing. There's pills you can take to, to fix this body. This body's breaking down so I can go and I can have a procedure done to fix this body because I'm not happy with what this body looks like. I don't want to do the work that may need to be taken place to build up the temple in which it is. So I want to glorify this body, but this body is going to die. And when it does, for those that have died in Christ will be raised imperishable, glorified. I find such encouragement in those words. It doesn't free me up to be sinful in the way I treat this body. I know that it's going to go 
And when it does, I'm going to be with the Lord, and it's going to rest until his due time that it is glorified. And in that glorification, we spend our days with the Lord, not for the body that we have, but for the one that provided it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for... Lord, just the goodness of, of, of your promise. Lord, that we can rest upon that promise, upon that truth, Lord, that you've provided a way to be with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. That upon coming to him, Lord, you make a way that we would, we would become that image, Lord, that we would be image bearers once again of you in the way that you designed us to be that was broken by sin, Lord. You mend what was broken, Lord. And I pray that we look to that hope of heaven, Lord. That we bear responsibility for how we steward the body you've given us. But we don't glory in the body you've given us, Lord. That we glory in you. For it is your splendor, it is your brightness, it is your majesty, Lord, that brings about all of these things. Lord, I can't wait. I pray that the body hears, they hear this, Lord. Can't wait. But I hope that my heart lives accordingly today. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in your name we pray.